you have a Bible, I invite you to open to the book of Ruth. If you're just joining us, uh, we're working our way through this delightful little book that's found between the books of Judges and 1 Samuel. And if we're in part four today, if you've missed the previous ones and want to go back and check them out, you can go to our website, uh, philida.org, and there is a place where you can listen to them. You can also go to our YouTube channel, Philida Bible Church, and uh, we have the videos there. I want to begin today with a question. I want you to think about this very carefully, and uh, you can give me your answer by just a raise of hand. I want you to think about yesterday. Okay, think about what you did yesterday, what you saw, what you experienced. And I want to know how many of you, don't raise your hand yet, how many of you believe that you witnessed an actual miracle yesterday? Again, don't raise your hand yet. Let's be clear on what a miracle is. A miracle is when God works contrary to or beyond the normal way that he has set up the world to work according to its natural law. So when we say supernatural, we mean above and beyond the natural. So like when Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. I mean, there's no way to explain that other than God overruled the normal rules. Okay, so how many believe you actually witnessed a genuine, bona fide miracle yesterday? Okay. Now, how many of you experienced something ordinary yesterday? Raise your hand. Okay. Given that there may have been a few genuine miracles yesterday, but a whole lot of ordinary, where was God yesterday? What was he doing? That's the reason we're going through this series in Ruth and why it's called Extraordinary. Because you and I need to understand that something does not have to be a miracle for God to be in it. Now, most of the time, in fact, what God does is not a miracle. Most of the time, God works in and through things that look, that are very ordinary. And yet, He works in those ordinary things to accomplish extraordinary things. It's His work. He's doing it. It's just not a miracle. And we need to learn how to give him the credit for those things that he does every day in and through the ordinary. That's one of the big lessons of this book. This book is a story full of ordinary things that God uses to bring about extraordinary results. And today I want to focus on the extraordinary thing that we call hope. One of the things that happens in this story 
is that God renews, God restores the hope of a woman who had lost it. And hopelessness, losing hope, is something that can happen to anyone. Anyone in this room, anyone who's tuning in, could potentially lose hope at some point. Feeling hopeless is a terrible place to be. We can do terrible things if we lose hope. We might try to numb the pain with various addictions. We might break relationships when we feel hopeless because we think, well, it doesn't matter. We might even attempt to end our own lives because suicide is the ultimate act of hopelessness. Hope, having hope, is really important. And God wants us to be filled with hope. Look at Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope, the God who gives hope, May he fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that sound extraordinary? Overflowing with hope by the power of the Spirit? How does that happen? How does God fill us with overflowing hope? Well, there's something here about trusting Him. But we're going to watch and see what He does. How He renewed, restored the hope of someone who had lost it. So let me recap the story to this point. The story is about a woman, an Israelite woman named Naomi, who had left the land of Israel, the promised land, and gone to a nation called Moab with her husband and her two sons. Her two sons both married Moabite women, one of whom was named Ruth. That's the title character of the book. And then Naomi's husband and two sons die. Leaving Naomi feeling very much like God was against her. In fact, at the end of chapter 1, she said, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Naomi means pleasant. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Have you ever felt like that? So, when she comes back to Israel, she's feeling hopeless. God's her adversary. But then Ruth, one of her two daughters-in-law, does something remarkable she doesn't stay in Moab with her people with her other sister-in-law that's what she does Ruth instead tells Naomi she says do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you where you go I will go where you stay I will stay your people will be my people and your God will be my God it's an amazing statement of faith and loyalty. And right here, we're, we're seeing one of the ways that God works. 
God works in ordinary life, he shows us his love and his truth through people. He does it through people. You know, we often want God to, uh, to show up in a really big, spectacular way. You know, we, we want to see that. We want to see him work that way. And you know what? Sometimes he does. But far more often, far more often, he works indirectly through people, through situations, through other things. And those things are just as much God things as a big miracle. So you got these two widows. They're coming back to Bethlehem. That's Naomi's hometown. Ruth goes to work by gleaning leftover grain in the field of a guy named Boaz. And it turns out that Boaz is uh, not merely a nice guy who loves God. Uh, he happens to be a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. And when Boaz meets Ruth... He compliments her. This right, right by itself is, is remarkable because Ruth was a Moabite and the Israelites and the Moabites, well, they just didn't get along. So he's, he compliments her for her loyalty and for her faith and then he actually looks out for her. He takes on her interests. He makes sure that she is well provided for. So then Ruth comes home and she, she tells Naomi about how kind and how generous Boaz is. And Naomi's like, hmm. She's very grateful and she's very interested. So let's pick it up. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Quick note, threshing floor was not like inside a room. Threshing floor was a flat surface, hard flat surface on the top of a hill somewhere where they would throw the the harvested grain in the air and the breeze would blow the straw, the chaff away, and the grain, that's how they winnowed the uh, grain. So, that's where he's going to be. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. And right now, some of you are thinking, what do you mean God works in the ordinary? This isn't ordinary. This is weird. (laughs) I'm sure glad the children have left for Children's Church. (laughs) Hold on. It's all G-rated, I promise. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. It's dark, okay? It's really dark. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, 
since you are a kinsman redeemer. See, what does that mean? Hold on. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. We'll get to that. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a kinsman redeemer, there's another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night in the morning. If he wants to do his duty as your kinsman redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord, Yahweh, God of Israel lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. <laughs> I just trying to imagine both of these people just trying to go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He's looking out for her reputation. He also said, bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. There's a lot of interesting things here, aren't there? But one thing stands out. Naomi has hope again how do we know because she's no longer focused on the past how bitter and empty she feels she's looking ahead see that's hope that forward look of anticipation so the first lesson for us here on hope is that hope enables us to dream and to plan You've got to have hope to dream and to plan. Naomi is definitely dreaming and planning here. Like any good mom, she wants to see her daughter be well taken care of. And my goodness, with Boaz being so nice to Ruth, Naomi sees, hey, I can see how this might happen. If Boaz would marry Ruth, that would be the ideal solution to several problems he's a godly generous man he's well off financially and he's family we'll get to the significance of that in a bit problem is Boaz for all of his good qualities seems oblivious to the possibilities here he needs a little encouragement even though he's clearly impressed by Ruth he says, everybody knows you're a woman of noble character. He's, he's very impressed, but he doesn't seem inclined to do any more than buy her lunch. And so Naomi comes up with a bold plan. Operation Cold Feet. <laughs> Boaz is going to be spending the night at the grain pile to protect it, likely. This was a very lawless time in the history of Israel. So he's going to be there at the grain pile. 
And Ruth is going to sneak up on him after he's asleep and quietly create a draft and wait for him to wake up. And when he does and says, who's that? Ruth says, why, it's just little old me. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. What exactly does that mean? Now, you can't really tell from looking at the English, but the word that's translated corner of your garment is the very same word for wing, wing of a bird. In fact, that's how some versions actually translate it. They translate it as spread your wing over your servant. It's kind of a strange thing to say, right? Well, it's very intentional. She is calling to mind. She is reminding Boaz of something he said in chapter 2. When he said to Ruth, May you be richly rewarded by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So what Ruth is saying is, just as I have found refuge under the wings of your God, I'd like to find refuge under your wings too, Boaz. So what do you say? You and I build ourselves a nest. Huh, fella? You know what this is a marriage proposal. That's what this is. Or if you prefer, it's an invitation for Boaz to propose to her. And this tells us there are times when guys need a little feminine encouragement. And there's nothing wrong with that. Some have kind of taught that, you know, women should never, ever, ever take the initiative based on the biblical understanding of, you know... Masculine leadership in the, in the home. It's like, don't take stuff like that and make it into an absolute. A woman must never take the initiative. I mean, this is taking the initiative. She lights a fire under this guy with this plan that Naomi dreamed up. And see, that's hope. That's hope at work. Hope enables us to dream and plan. Without hope, you won't do it. We will not dream and plan. Why would we? Nothing good's going to come of it. See, that's hopelessness. But if you've come to the place of putting your hope in Jesus Christ, your faith in Him, to forgive your sin, to make you right with God, to in effect give all the promises of God to you, to make them real for you, then you can trust Him. And this is something every believer in Jesus must learn. To trust Him to work all. All. Such a little, massive word. All things together for your good. Your ultimate good. So no matter how bad things are now, and things can be bad. I mean, yesterday was a sober reminder of the kind of bad things that can happen in this broken world. No matter how bad things are, no matter how old you are, or sick you are, or how poor you are, if you know Jesus, if you have put your trust in Him, then God has incredible things in store for you. So, you can dream. 
You can plan. And you can anticipate God being at work for your joy. In fact, we should dream and plan. There's this false logic. It's unbiblical logic that goes like this. Well, if God is sovereign, if God is ultimately sovereignly in control of all things, then I don't need to do anything. That's bad logic. The Bible never teaches that. Naomi's example here shows us that God works through our planning as we trust in Him. So trusting God, that does not make us passive. Trusting God doesn't make us passive. It makes us confident that God will be at work. That doesn't mean everything we plan is going to happen. You know, very often our plans depend on all kinds of things we can't control. But the point is, if we're trusting Him and relying on Him and praying and we're planning to do the very kinds of things that He calls us to do and wants us to do, we can be confident, we can have hope that He's going to be at work in that. Whether it turns out like we want or not, He'll be at work in that for our good. Naomi was not passive. She was trusting God. And boy, did she plan. A second lesson on hope I see is that hope empowers us to do what is loving. It empowers us to do what is loving. Now I know we're all sitting here and, you know, we're in church. So if I asked you, do you want to do the loving thing? You're all going to say yes. But let's be honest, there are times when you don't want to do the loving thing. Because the loving thing is hard. Or it's different from what you want to do. Boaz says something very interesting in verse 10. After Ruth basically proposes or invites him to propose, he calls that an act of kindness. Choosing him instead of trying for some younger guy. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say this kindness of yours is greater than the kindness you've shown previously? You know, is, is he saying, well, that's sure nice of you to propose to an older guy like me. No, that's not it. The word for kindness is a word for deep and loving loyalty. It's not just niceness. By asking Boaz to marry her, Ruth is doing something very loving and very loyal. You know what she's doing? She's looking out for Naomi and Naomi's family, not just herself. Now to get this, you've got to know what the rules were back then. The law of Moses, when God gave the Israelites his Torah, his instruction through Moses, it included instructions for not letting a family line die out. That was a big deal. And so, if a married man died without any children, then one of his brothers was supposed to marry his widow, and their first child would be considered the heir of the deceased. And by extension, if a brother wasn't available, another male relative could do the same thing. 
So Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her and raise up an heir for Naomi's son, her husband who had died, so that the family line won't die out. And there's more. There's this land that belongs to Naomi's family. Well, Naomi needs to sell it. She can't take care of it. She can't use it. But she wants to keep it within her husband's family. So if Boaz, who's a kinsman, he's related somehow to Elimelech, if he'll marry Ruth and buy Naomi's land, then Ruth and Boaz's child will not only carry on the family name, he will inherit the family land. So here's the point. Boaz is the ideal candidate to be the kinsman redeemer. Not because he's so handsome and charming which he may very well have been. The Bible didn't come with pictures, so we don't know. But that's not the reason he's the ideal candidate. It's not because he's handsome and charming. It's because he's family and he's wealthy. He's got the resources to do this. So, <laughs> get this. Ruth wants him to marry her so she can fulfill her commitment to Naomi. that doesn't sound very romantic, does it? Hey, Boaz, will you marry me so I can fulfill an important obligation? Seems like that would kind of kill the mood. But Ruth, the point is she's not just looking out for herself. She's not looking out for her own preferences. She's thinking of Naomi. She's looking out for this woman that she has committed to loving so even if Ruth might have preferred a younger guy, and we don't know that, it's just speculating, but let's say she, she might have preferred a younger guy, um, she chooses to do the loving thing. <laughs> so she proposes to Boaz. Why? Obviously, she believes that doing the loving thing matters. Why would it matter? See, that only really makes sense if we ultimately trust in God and have hope and have confidence that he will reward every act of love we do because we trust him. That's the point. And when I say reward, I don't mean necessarily material reward. You know, big house, big car, lots of cash. It's that ultimate reward the, that God will make it worth it one way or another, sooner or later. So, he always does do that. Hebrews 10.35 So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And if you don't have that confidence, that's hope. If you don't have that confidence that God's going to make it worth it, it's really tough to do the loving thing. It's really tough. When you'd rather do something else. Now, you just take the situation here with Boaz, okay? Boaz, Ruth, grain pile, dark, middle of the night. The, the way the narrative is crafted very intentionally raises the tension. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on here? What's going to happen? 
it would have been so easy for Boaz to take advantage of that situation. I mean, it's dark. There's a young woman here. She smells good. Nobody else is around. It would have been very easy for Boaz to try to take advantage of Ruth, and if he had, he would have gotten away with it. She was a foreigner. He was a well-respected, powerful man. I mean, who's going to take her side if he mistreats her? And remember, this is the time of the judges. This is a very immoral time in Israel's history, and a big part of the immorality was connected to the harvest as a way of ensuring and celebrating the fertility of the land. It's really not hard to imagine this getting out of hand. So what keeps Boaz from doing the selfish thing? Notice the first words out of his mouth once he realizes what's going on here. Verse 10, The Lord, bless you, my daughter, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, God of Israel, the one true God, who calls Himself the defender of the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Boaz has put his life, he has put his future in the hands of God. And that hope that God will see and God will know and God will recompense and God will make it worth it, that hope empowers him to do what is loving. Knowing that's what God wants him to do. He even goes so far, <laughs> he even goes so far to point out that there's actually another kinsman who's closer in the family line than he is. And so that guy technically has first dibs on this whole marry the widow and redeem the land routine. So he's got to check with him first. And we're like, whoa, 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 hold it. No way, Boaz, come on. We don't want this other guy to do it. We want you. You're the hero of the story. And you know something? I think that's what Boaz wants too. I think he really does. But he wants something else even more. He wants the blessing of God. And see, that's a big part of what hope requires you have to want God's blessing. You have to want His approval. You have to want His smile more than you want anything else. So Boaz does it God's way, and that's what hope empowers us to do, to do the loving thing, knowing that God sees, God knows, God will reward when we do any act of love because we trust Him. So, how do you get hope? How do you get more hope? How do you strengthen hope when it's weak? I want to point out just one thing from the example of Naomi. There are other things we could talk about, but just one. So this, this widow who goes from being completely hopeless in chapter 1 to full of hope in chapter 3, how did that happen? Here, I think, is a big part of it. Naomi decided... She made a choice to see the good things in her life as God doing good to her. 
You say, good things. And she lost her husband. She lost her two sons. That's true. But Ruth's love for her was a good thing. Returning to the promised land was a good thing. A good barley harvest was a good thing. Ruth meeting Boaz was a good thing. Boaz being generous to Ruth was a good thing. And Naomi chose to see that God was behind all of that. See, that's another piece to this thing of God using ordinary stuff to accomplish extraordinary outcomes. He's in those things. That's always true, but we don't always see it that way. So, James 1.17, look at it. Every good gift, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So if you choose to see it, if I choose to see it, we can acknowledge that every good thing in our lives is really and truly God doing good to us. Every single thing. And if you acknowledge that, if you choose to see it, that'll help renew your hope. That will help strengthen your confidence that God has good things in store for you because He's doing good to you. And He will continue to do good things. So that means when something good happens or we see recognize something good, that we don't just say, oh yeah, well, you know, that's just what happened. Or, even worse, well, of course that happened. That's what should happen. That's what I deserve. No. See it as God doing good to you. See it as God doing good to you. Choose to see that. Romans fifteen thirteen again. Look at it. Let these words just marinate in your mind and heart. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see the good and we choose to trust in Him. And that, that faith by the power of the Spirit, will strengthen and cause hope to overflow. Let's pray together. Hope is not an all or nothing thing. So today, you and I, each one of us is somewhere on a spectrum Hopeless at one end, overflowing with hope at the other end. I wonder where you are today. Maybe you've experienced some real hardship lately. And you're finding it hard to believe that God is for you. But if you have said yes to Jesus Christ, then God is for you and nothing can ultimately prevail against you. He promises that. And Jesus sealed those promises with His blood. He died and rose again to make those promises true for anyone who will trust in Him. 
That means trusting him, relying on him, not relying on yourself, not relying on your goodness, your achievements, your ability to please him. But Jesus, Jesus is the one who has done that for us. And we just say yes to him. So I want to just encourage you and invite you, if you've never have, to say yes to him. Or whatever situation you're in right now, however difficult, it's hard. But look for the good and realize that's God. God doing good to you. And he will cause even the bad things ultimately to work together for your good. You may not have any idea how that could even be possible. But God, Jesus, nothing is impossible for him. Father, we, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for your incredible love for us, for how you have done good. You do good every day to the just and the unjust. And to those who trust you, who trust your Son, and his sacrifice for our sin, his resurrection. You do all things ultimately for our good. So help us, even when the enemy intends something for evil, help us remember you always intend everything for good and you will make it so. Give us the faith to believe that and cause us to overflow with hope in a world that is dying for hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.